This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Tonight, Laura, Cage, Joe and me, Vanessa, would love to welcome you to another edition of Bite Into It. Welcome, team. Hi. Nice to see you all. Hey there. Coming up tonight, you can feel the crackling anticipation in studio because we will be speaking to Dr. Juan Roman from NASA. So you'll want to stay around for that. We'll keep the news brief, shall we? Laura, what's happening in news this week? Well, look, there's been quite a lot of things hitting the headlines, but one that caught my eye that people may not have had a look at is that a new birth control app has just been released, which uses purely mathematics and no hormones, and in fact, nothing that you actually ingest or take into your body, which is pretty amazing. Um, It's brought to us by this nuclear physicist lady, um, Alina, I'm sure I'm gonna pronounce this wrong, but Alina Berglund, and her app had to do a bunch of fighting with um, the Swedish version of the FDA, essentially, right. to to get approval because it all it does essentially is measure your temperature and then run some smart algorithms to work out what your fertility is and then tell you whether or not it's safe to have unprotected sex, which is pretty incredible, particularly if you're in your partnership and you don't necessarily want to do any sort of intense interventions, but you don't want to fall pregnant. Wasn't there a word for measuring your temperature and doing this that, uh, you know, didn't Catholics mm. used to use a, a, a different version of this I think it's called like the rhythm or the pattern yeah does that sound the rhythm the the rhythm method something like that but I think like if you're just counting days it's not terribly accurate Mm. so like apparently your temperature is a much more accurate um, way of of determining your fertility so well there you go sensors taking over our personal lives precisely amazing Mm mm-hmm Uh, In other very trite news, Australia is about to become a playable nation in Civilization VI. Now, Civilization is a a turn-based strategy game that my nephew is actually quite into. And uh, it has a lot of incidental history and geographic knowledge kind of built into it, which which I think is kind of sweet for kids. And so it is nice that Australia is showing up there. Um, I'm sure they'll get a very mixed up view of history from playing Civilization, though. The order's all thrown out and Gandhi likes to declare war occasionally, which is very confusing for everyone. Well, when you come up against people who are um, basically bandits and you've got, like, just invented the wheel and they've got, like, tanks, for example, all the technology being out of out of whack, and that's pretty <laughs> interesting as well. Yeah. Behind the scenes, they do have a nice timeline there where they do try and, you know, elaborate on who's in the Stone Age and who's in this age and, you know, they, they now have a social age, so they've really oh, jumped no. forward, Yeah. <laughs> alarming. I don't know how they mm. use the social age. Maybe they declare war via tweets. Gosh. <laughs> Twitter, Twitter poll to see whether or not we're going to go and invade Germany. That's right. Uh, what else in news? Something, something about Uber has been um, boiling over the last few days. Mm, this lady, there's a, a lady who recently left them. Um, she's a developer engineer um, named Susan Fowler, and she's she's released a blog post which basically accuses Uber of having a really toxic culture for women. Um, and well, I'd say accuses. I'd say more. It's more an expose. Like Vanessa, you and I were chatting just before about how sort of matter of fact and un, unemotional the accounting mm. is, and I think that was really um, key to its success. And mm. I'm, I was extremely impressed by how well. She she was able to talk about what had happened to her and, you know, articulate it and document it without it being like an emotional or hyperbolic account. Yeah, absolutely. It's very much a, um, as you just said there, like a, a documentation rather than an accusation, mm. um, which I think also makes it just that little bit more horrifying in some ways. Like it's very, mm. it's very much, um, 
it's very cut and dry. It's very, um, yeah, it's just a, and it's very typical of Silicon Valley as well. Mm. Um, I think that what what we're seeing there is a, a, a very broad um, and very uh, common thing that's disgusting and that's finally light sort of shining on it. And it'll be interesting to see where this goes. Personally, I don't have a lot of um, hope for Silicon Valley and, 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 and how it responds to things like this. Mm. But yeah, I'm just, what, what do you think? Well, look, I think that it's um, it's very hard to change a culture that's become that toxic, right? Like she's she's talked about an environment where the actual um, the the actual oh hello I think I've got a little bit of mic mic touch having a mic error I think it's very exciting um, so there's there's a little bit of um, difficulty for. Uh, a culture that's become so toxic where the managers are essentially saying like we're not going to let this lady transfer from one department to another because we have to keep our quota of women up like that, <laughs> that to me is like it's it's backwards incentives yeah, right measuring like the wrong things measuring the wrong things you're measuring an artifact and not like the the like things that are the good culture so um i i tend to agree that like particularly for big shops like that that have such um such a negative and toxic environment and like particularly a guy who's just basically like I feel like I'm it's all right it's okay for me to propose sex over chat on your first day and then not have any any repercussions for that like that says to me that there's just been too many things let slip over time absolutely um what about you Vanessa like do you think that it's redeemable like how do you how do you turn a ship around that's gone that far I think that um, by owning the problem, which the CEO has done in the last 24 hours and um, calling an all hands on, you know, meeting to address concerns, to have really frank questions uh, thrown at him is is a good step. He also had um, Ariana Huffington, who was one of the members of the board of the company present. And I think having people present at that level, but probably not aware of this sort of issue happening on the ground, at least it's the start of, you know, sunlight being the best disinfectant. Mm. Um, of course, people can come back from this, but, you know, it's they're going to need to address these concerns um, quite publicly and and have an investigation that has some, some transparent results mm. because otherwise, you know, the faith in, in that is broken and uh, very hard to repair culture without, you know, some honesty. Yeah, particularly since she did, I mean, it sounds like what she did was everything right. You know, she mm. she went ahead and reported everything that was inappropriate to HR and then tried to escalate it up the levels when it wasn't being acted upon. So, And meanwhile, there's this sub-story of, of what should be the main story of her job, which is that, you know, she was talking about the type of work that she found satisfying and that mm. she had experiences in and how she was trying to actively work on the teams, trying to solve problems that mm. she'd solved for companies before and how this was actually getting in the way of her being able to do the job mm. Mm. and people suggesting she move into different teams where she probably couldn't be as effective you know, that's where it's a, it's a sad kind of derailment of the career and where you see the actual impact, not just the personal impact, but say the impact to the bottom line, mm. uh, which hopefully is a, is a key motivator yeah. for the leaders of, of the organisation. I, I guess I feel a little bit pessimistic about um, Uber because I feel like they t tend to have a very bad social rep anyway. They tend to, they, they sort of trample worker rights. They... Um, they don't really have a, a good relationship with with people in general, and so I, I think I maybe 
Yeah, maybe when they're coding, there seems to be a lot of capability to do things. You know, we hear about, you know, they created this God mode where they could follow individual mm-hmm. people around, mm-hmm. but not a lot of questioning of the why. Why would we do this? Mm. And I, th- I think it comes back, you know, when we look at the technology side of it, you know, it comes back to, well, aren't we always asking what problem are we solving and why and is it the right problem? Yeah, I guess that's a big part of it. And I think as well as that, like just the history of like um, uh, going after journalists, for example, and, yeah. and doxing journalists uh, and and breaking up attempts to unionize and things like that. Like mm-hmm. just from a, a grander, from, from both the app perspective and from just like the political social perspective, mm. I, I, I kind of, I, I personally, I just find it really hard to give Travis, uh, the CEO, and um, that, that whole board a pass because yeah. they don't really have a, very good track record of this. And the competition is rapidly gaining. You know, Lyft is out there, um, not just pushing the technology forward in different ways, but pushing the cultural side of that. Mm. And it's getting increasingly difficult to divorce the two. Even in, in our space, which is traditionally a little bit slower, like we recently had the launch of Sheba, which is the female yes. only um, like ride sharing and ride, um, actually, sorry, it's not ride sharing. It's an, it's essentially Uber, but for women only and women drivers. Um, and certainly like they're addressing this issues of women feeling unsafe being driven around by men or feeling like they have that potential to be like harassed or made to feel mm. uncomfortable. And, you know, I, I, um, I don't know if this is the solution, but it is interesting to see that like people are trying to tackle it from different angles. And mm. certainly like, I don't expect Uber is going to be the sole player on the market <laughs> going forwards. Like it feels like for the last year or so it has been in Melbourne, but I imagine going forwards, it's going to start getting more crowded as a marketplace. Absolutely. If, if you go to the States, you see a lot of very, very regional um, rideshare or, or Uber style apps as well. So you have like the big two, Uber and Lyft, and then like a whole bunch of super, super local versions of those as well. And the other thing as well is I do just wanted to mention a, a service called Libra Taxi, mm. which is um, done through Telegram as like a message bot. And it's basically like a textual, you, you text it, an emoticon of a car and then it, you text it, it's like your location. And then like they send a car to you that you pay for in cash which is like this really interesting other way of looking at it as well. Don't know how safe it is. <laughs> Don't know how safe it is. It's meant for like developing countries, right? So countries with high penetration rates of, of apps like Telegram, but like not so much um, industries where where Uber really doesn't care that much about being involved in. It, I love that um, an app that is resorting to going low tech with the cash flow is using Telegram, which sounds low tech, but is high tech. Absolutely. <laughs> it's it's this weird it's clash. It's kind of poetic. Of, yeah, it's a total weird clash of um, of... of Statuses, I guess. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, in studio, we've just been joined by Dr. Juan Roman. He is the Deputy Director of Applied Engineering and Technology Directorate at NASA, um, particularly at the Goddard Space Flight Centre. And uh, in addition to his work at the at the Flight Centre, he's an adjunct facility member at the Johns Hopkins University where he lectures graduate level courses. So he is practised at dumbing it down a little and we might need all of those skills in play tonight. Welcome to Studio One. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with uh, all of you. It's lovely to have you in Melbourne. Now, the Goddard Flight Centre was established in 1959 as NASA's first space flight centre. It's just outside of Washington, D.C. and employs approximately 10,000 civil servants and contractors. It's the largest combined organisation of scientists and engineers in the U.S., dedicated to increasing knowledge of the Earth, the solar system and the universe via observations from space. When we get started with this discussion, what else should we know about the Goddard Space Flight Centre? It's a wonderful place to work. We have a great 
team of scientists and engineers and as you describe i think one of the key components is the interaction that a mix between scientists and engineers all in one location that's what make us unique so you've been at the space flight center since 1988 that's correct how has your career changed in that time i mean in 88 that's the technology alone must have changed tremendously absolutely i've seen a lot of changes i've seen a lot of uh, progress being made uh, it's a wonderful place to work. So many people ask me, especially with the younger generation, the millennials, they say, well, I would like to experience this for a few years and then go to work somewhere else. I'm a lifetimer there. And um, throughout my career, when I started, I started in the testing space simulation activity. So very at the very last end, once we have the satellites all built together. We need to replicate the space environment. So I, I grew up kind of testing the hardware. Let's see if we can break it before we send them to space. But throughout my 30 years, almost 30 years there, I have done from, I moved from the very end of the process to the very beginning of the process, working with the scientists in terms of conceiving great missions. Where do we go next? What is the next mission? So I, I find myself very fortunate from being able to experience in the full spectrum of missions. That's a unique thing to do. So these days it's very fashionable for people in technology to talk about failing fast and, and that being where all the, all the really meaty learnings come from. Uh, if you think back to those early days when you were actually in the hardware side of things, what was the most expensive thing you ever broke and learned from? Wow. Well, my, the biggest and, and uh, <clears throat> maybe not the most expensive, but in terms of uh, is very impressive is that when I started working at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in 1988, as you mentioned, um, we were working on a satellite called COBE, the Cosmic Background Observer. And the principal investigator was Dr. John Mather. And so we tested, I was participant. I, we did a very big and elaborate one month test that it was a cryogenic test going all the way to 20 Kelvin. So zero Kelvin is absolute. We tested the spacecraft at 20 Kelvin and the test took a month. But after we were able to launch the mission, Dr. John Mather was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1990, I think it was in 2006, Dr. John Mather, because he proved the Big Bang Theory, you know, in terms of the expansion of the universe. So when you can see that you, you're a young engineer starting fresh out of college, that you can still, you know, you don't know your way out through the space business, be a, a, a small member on a large team, on a mission that won the Nobel Prize in Physics. That is an amazing, and, and I work with Dr. John Mather, you know, on a regular basis. He's a very humble, very bright individual. Right now, we're doing another mission for him called the James Webb Space Telescope, which is the successor of the Hubble Space Telescope. So that, for me, is kind of the, the, the great, you know, looking back almost 30 years. 
being able to work in a, on a mission and, and be part of a Nobel Prize team. So when we when we think about NASA, um, so often we think about the generosity of NASA in sharing their information um, for for everyone on Earth, not just um, well, not just with Americans where where NASA's based. And uh, I, I wonder if you could give us a few examples of how deep space exploration has created some new technologies and products that we use on Earth today. I imagine you've got a lot more examples than just the space pen, which we all think of from Seinfeld. <laughs> that is correct. Uh, <clears throat> We, we call those uh, inventions kind of, uh, we call them spin-off. That means that we utilize the technology that we use for space for benefit here on Earth. Say, for example, I'm going to give a few examples, but if you go, and for the listeners as well, if you go to NASA spin-offs uh, and, and Google that or, or use your favorite browser, <laughs> and to get the information, you will see a, a lot of them. Also, another website that I want to, to show is NASA Home and City. If you go NASA Home and City, there will be a website that you see like a, like a, like a city and a, and, and a home that you can click and you can see the different applications. But for example, in airspace, in, in airplane, we all use airplane, uh, collision avoidance systems. Well, it's a spin-off that uh, and has been in use for now many years, but but one that we started developing because we need to in the space program we needed uh, automatic rendezvous and docking. If you remember the Skylab and mm-hmm. all the missions, yeah. and and when you landed on the moon, you know the 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 Eagle module had to go up and then and then dock again with so all that technology the finding something in space and be able to very precisely come together those were spin-off that were eventually transfer into the airspace uh, and commercial airplane carrier in order to avoid for collision so you have this sense of knowledge where other planes are around you that's one uh, one that is uh, a little bit more recent, uh, the space shuttle used some shock absorbers when, when in the launch pad, when the, shock, when the uh, shuttle takes off, you have to absorb some of that vibration. So th- that technology on damping mm-hmm. is called, it's now used in buildings. So uh, California part of the United States is very prone for, for earthquakes and other other regions of the world like Japan, for example. So architects are using that technology in terms of damping that they put in in action in buildings. So they make them more, how can I say, resistance to earthquake. So they can move and they can absorb a lot of energy without falling apart, breaking. So that's that's a a spin-off in space technology. This is another one that is very useful. When, uh, when we're looking at the stars, we try to take an image of the, the sky and then we find out where that location is by l- l- seeing mapping. So one of the, the biologists uh, start thinking and they say, well, I can track some of the animals like, like for example, whales. Ah, 
whales are swimming across the ocean. There is a vast ocean. When they look from some of the remote sensing satellites, they can pinpoint some of the pattern and the, and the trajectory of these whales by just looking at the spots. You know, that like the, the shark whale, yeah. I think that it's called, that has some unique, unique spots, just like a zebra. So every spot is like uh, identified with a unique animal. We can track them from space. And, and help some of the biologists looking at the mating location or where do they go to give birth and things like that. There is a lot of things that we don't know here on Earth, and we're trying to apply space technology to the benefit of not only the United States, just like you said, but we give it free for the world. So do you think um, NASA is sort of the prime example of exploration in science that's pure for its own sake, but then has a ton of applications and spinoffs that we can't sort of imagine what they could be until they happen. Like, it feels like the sort of, the, the idea of science is often to explore without knowing what the outcome is, but often that gets pushed down into like commercial applications straight away. But it sounds like there are things that have happened from NASA's explorations that we couldn't have anticipated how they would turn into commercial products, but now we have all of these things in our lives. Like, I was reading through this list of spin-off technologies and I should have known this, but I didn't know that Temperform was was a NASA product. Yeah. <laughs> it's how how long ago was that developed for NASA Technologies? I have to admit that uh, <laughs> I don't know exactly. There are so many. You know, I know a few of them that I'm more uh, more familiar. Like for example, another one that just popped in my mind: temperatures. You know, I, when I was growing up. You know, temperature was an uncomfortable thing because, you know, you have a thermometer to, to measure your temperature. Uh, now it's, it's the infrared thermometer. So yeah. they, they point it at your forehead mm-hmm. and, and you can measure your temperature without touching. And that was not something that when I was growing up, you know, 52 years ago, I was not used. <laughs> yeah. So, but I don't know, I, I guess that if you go to spin off, they have a little story, they tell you the dates. The data is so vast that I don't know all of them. <laughs> mm, of course. Yeah, I'm just looking through some of these here. There's things like um, rechargeable hearing aid batteries, um, farming, self-driving vehicles for, for agriculture. Uh, just the, the list is just, you know, the inner ear to the biggest tractors. It's, it's, it's fascinating stuff. Um, your research interests are listed as um, technology management and innovation, systems analysis and design and knowledge management, um, which I guess kind of codifies a little bit of what we've just been talking about. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about that and also how, I guess, uh, deeply they run through NASA's uh, ESOTs, I guess? Perfect. Um, It's very interesting because I always wanted, you know, uh, I personally believe that it's a... continuous learning environment if you're not learning you know i learn every day you know i learn with with my kids i learn with everybody that i interact you know you can always learn something but when i started at nasa i started from uh, i completed my bachelor degree in mechanical engineering and i was hired directly but i wanted to continue studying so i w- i continued doing my masters and phd when i was looking for a research topic as part of my uh, research dissertation. I initially was looking for technology management because we we obviously develop a lot of technology, but then I came up with with a new concept in those days, knowledge management, and I say, wow, instead of managing the technology, if you can harvest the knowledge of the organization, imagine how many new technologies you can 
you can develop. So uh, I went from the softer science more in terms of how do you put to people to collaborate? How can you uh, transfer some of that experience base to others? That interaction, that that sometimes it's a friction, but it's a creative friction. So, so I, I did my PhD focusing on technology, but also on, on managing the knowledge within the organization to leverage the technologies. So it was an intersection of that. How does that apply to NASA? NASA is in the federal government. Every year, the United States runs a, a very large survey approximately 420,000 employees across the federal sector are interviewed, not interviewed, they are, they fill a survey. And NASA has been the most innovative organization uh, or agency across the federal sector since the beginning. That's part of the fabric of the organization at NASA. And we have been, in the last five years, we have been the the uh, the best place to work across the government sector is because we have that creative environment. We foster innovation. Uh, we have a sense of mission, you know, kind of applying the technology for the benefit of our planet, for discovery of science. Uh, it's quite a great uh, mission to have. Um, we were just talking about culture before for, for the tech and the startup land. Um, I'm, I'm curious to know like what your thoughts are on how NASA has sort of fostered a culture of technology and curiosity and, and growth that, that sustains 10,000 employees. And I think I heard somewhere 20,000 contractors as well. Like, how, do you, how do you manage it at that scale? Well, our, our center, Goddess Payfly Center, has 10,000 employees. Agency-wide, we have approximately 30,000 civil servants, you know, government employee, and around 70,000 contractors. So it's, we are a large organization because imagine we're developing the rockets, launch vehicles, capsules for the for the the astronauts. We are building satellites. We're building airplanes. You know, developing. So we have a large portfolio. One of the, so so one of the things you know we're kind of a Goddess Space Flight Center is kind of a university. You go there, you see some people you know with the hair all kind of Einstein looking and you know sandals in in winter and all that. It's pretty you know we you go to a meeting at eight o'clock in the morning and, and buildings are are you know empty, but then eleven p.m. at night it's like vibrant. And I said whoa, so it's like this free fall. Uh, environment. However, you know, one of the things that you mentioned about the culture, that's very important. We we think that there are three key things that, are, that foster that culture of innovation and creativity. One is that we need to engage our employees. So we have an active engagement. You know, I'm as a senior executive at Goddard, take very seriously, you know, trying to see what my employees need and what do they want. You know, how can I, I how can I help them in the work that they do. So we take that seriously and, and we try to engage, so employee engagement. The second one, we try to develop managers and leaders that, that value those qualities uh, about employee engagement, you know, being able to work and, uh, and give them freedom forever. We don't have even core hours. A Goddess Payfly Center, most of the people work from, say, nine to five, 
but but you don't have as long as you work your eight hours we give eight hours of honest pay for eight hours of honest work but most of the people work more than eight hours but we don't have a punch card system so it's kind of a you know we trust our employees and and in, in return we get more than eight hours of work so the third component i already mentioned you know kind of a uh, the employee engagement, the leaders, that we, we value our leaders, we train them. The other one is give them the recognition and reward that they deserve. And even in failure, you, you all know or have seen the movie Apollo 13, yeah. and, and it's a fact, you know, mm -hmm. failure is not an option. When you have human beings on the line, we try to avoid that. Unfortunately, it has happened. The Challenger disaster, the the some of the the explosion that has happened mm -hmm. however uh we want to recognize you know failure we have a new program that is called lean forward and fail safe for example Aww. that means that you know if you have a research and the research doesn't pan out but 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 you learn from it so we we take that learning and we apply it for your next project and then your next project might be successful we need to recognize that we learn a lot sometimes more within our failures that with our success. Now, Juan, you were a key drawcard at last week's Creative Melbourne event. Could you tell us a little bit about that conference or, or you know, event, I guess? Uh, yes, uh, that's primarily the reason that I'm here in Australia because I was invited to be a speaker in the Creative Melbourne, which is a very innovative. Uh, art, Dr. Arthur Shelley put together a, a lineup of eight international speakers and some local speakers from Melbourne and even Perth or other areas of, of Australia. Uh, so one of the things that the, we try to do is to share some of the creativity and innovation aspects that each one of us are doing. And, and it's amazing when you look, one of the, the organizations that Arthur in the Creative Melbourne that were presenting was the Cirque of Soleil, which is here in town uh, performing. But one of the things that they did is that they, they are very innovative. As you see, the shows are very innovative. They have a similar philosophy in terms of if we would like to take risk, do, do shows that they are never done before. And if you're going to fail, you know, like you were talking about failing fast, failing quickly, learning, that's the same philosophy that they are applying in terms of, you know, take the risk, do the show, you know, start small. And then if it fails, you know, how do you learn it? And then create another show, which is kind of the same philosophy that NASA has. And we are in completely different sectors. So one of the advantage of this is bringing groups of individuals that uh, otherwise will not share their experiences. And when you share those things, you know, those are the aha moment. Oh, I can apply some of that. I can apply some of the, the creative way of thinking. You know, we had speakers from, from Thailand in terms of uh, uh, some of the professors were the first master's degree in innovation management. So it's kind of the next MBA, you know, mm -hmm. it, it, instead of managing business, manage innovation and create more business. So the conference was a very, very good. One of my presentations, the presentation, the focus that I did is uh, sharing with people all the creativity and innovation that NASA does, since we are the most innovative organization, the federal government in the United States, but also making 
awareness of that the space technology and the spin-off are closer than what you think, mm -hmm. closer to everyday life. Mm -hmm. Many people, my neighbor and others, you know, ask me, oh, NASA, you spend so much money and, and, and for what benefit? So I think that we have a message that not many people know. We, we kind of suffer from being too humble sometimes. We don't, we, we don't show or, or share some of the benefits that we do. We like to show the, the pictures of the new galaxies, the new stars, mm -hmm. but the spin-off from all of those research impact our daily life in a very significant way. What do you see as um, some of the challenges to uh, optimizing knowledge that uh, NASA develops? And, and you know, is, is there a difficulty ever bridging that gap between it being inside NASA and then being outside in industry or society more broadly? There is always challenge. If somebody tells you that, that there is no challenge in terms of some managing some of that knowledge that are lying, in my opinion, because there are, you can always do better. That's something that you strive. You may be the, the best innovative ideas, but there is always room for improvement. Uh, yes, sometimes I have to admit we need to, we are a little bit process driven because we, we want to manage the risk. We don't want to be too cavalier in terms of doing things. And sometimes a little bit too process oriented can stifle innovation because, oh, you have to take, you know, have to count every part, know everything that you do, do it over and over in a repetitive manner. So some people say, oh, you know, but, but the, the key thing is to manage some of control environment because we're really taking risks, but we're not, we don't want to take risks that is non you know, at least we want to know when we're taking risk and not take you by surprise. Uh, but at the same time, be able to harness that. One of the things that we try to do is to share our knowledge with the entire world. So even though the United States and NASA will, will you know, we build the Hubble Space Telescope, for example, but astronomy books and, and science books all over the world has been changed with some of the images from the Hubble Space Telescope, some of the data. So we pu we'll put all that data, all that open to the public. It's no, you know, right now, NASA is trying to minimize the, the, what we call is the preparatory period where the principal investigator says, well, this is, this is my data and nobody else will see it because we want researchers from Australia, researchers from the United Kingdom or Canada to really look at the data. Maybe they will have some insights that we didn't. So it's that greater collaboration that really creates that new knowledge. That's what we're trying to foster. So there are people that says, no, 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 you know, maybe we need to hoard it more, and, and, but we are putting it as much as possible out there. It's like the open source of, um, yeah, like the open source yeah. community where you're putting code out, but instead of putting code out, you're putting data out. Well, we, a lot of, uh, one of the things that we do in our organization, we have a group that does the flight dynamics, the orbital mechanics. That means if we're going to launch a, uh, you know, a satellite and, or a rover, and if it's going to Mars, we need to know exactly where is the location of Mars has to be at the, at the time that you launch it, because Mars is not going to stop. It's going to keep uh, moving. And then the, the, the launch vehicle has to have a, a close encounter at the same time. So these are very complicated 
three-dimensional, you know, uh, formulas, and, and we call it orbital mechanic. We developed some software and we put it as an open source because yeah. we believe that, that universities should be using it. We believe that students all over, so we don't want to, you know, it's, it costs a lot of money, takes a lot of effort, but you know what? When you're sharing it, what we have found out that university professors or students and other laboratories, other facilities, I said, you know, we're gonna add this module that, that you have not developed yet and we're gonna make it available to you as well. So everybody builds on top of it and it becomes better. So while it's maybe uh, counterintuitive, we have proven that when you share something, instead of losing it, you actually make it better. Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with NASA's um uh, approach to copyright for images in particular, and I think it's really admirable. Um, it's so great to have images being available for science as well as for artworks and for people to like mash up and play with and, and explore. And, you know, like these images are of our universe and to be able to have like really beautiful, high quality photography from the Hubble, it's, it's incredible. Um, I was, I was going to ask, um, I think NASA has a database of innovations. Can you tell us more about that? Like, what is it there for and, and who's, who's, um, who's it targeted for? So one of the things that we have, it's, it's uh, one database in particular that I would like to point out is uh, TechPort. Uh, TechPort, if, if you go, that is open to the entire world. It's not, it's, it's not there is no, uh, uh, the information that you find in that database is not proprietary, it's to share. And what we're trying to do, imagine, we have a lot of research going on at the same time. And, and as much as you try, sometimes you have the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. I don't know in English you say that. Yep. So one of the things that we're trying to do is to make, aggregate all that data, put it there again for people to use. We try to put a lot of information and, and uh, we call, we use a, uh, a scale that is called the technology readiness level, TRL, for, you know, when you're TRL, uh, one, that means that it's at the, the basic fundamental building block. When you are TRL nine, that means that we have used it already in space. So I'm just giving you the two okay. data points. So we, we will produce that database and we have this technology is at this level and we show our plans. The reason because uh, we want people to find it and say, oh, I can apply that. And, you know, maybe I can help you move it from one level to the next level. But if we combine our research, one of the things that we have found is that when you put the principal investigator name or, or the contact information, the people will contact you. And it's not a lot about what the information that is available on the website, but it's those interactions outside of the website that are very valuable. Oh, I know that Laura is doing this research that I'm doing over here. Maybe I should talk to her and collaborate. So the database is just only like a, a meeting place to a certain degree. That's so great to hear because, you know, it can be relatively easy to put the habits in place to capture that explicit knowledge. Mm. But when you get to, you know, making connections between people, finally that implicit contextual stuff can be can be present and uh, the opportunities just, just go. Yeah, we have, uh, we have also another big database that is called the Lessons Learned Database. Yeah. But again, similar to your explaining, you, you did a very insightful... Uh, uh, summary about that. It's not the explicit knowledge that you write on a website. We have found that most of the knowledge that really 
you know, gold nuggets are people contacting each other. Oh, you have that problem. You know, I have a similar problem. It's not exactly the same, but have you experienced this? And and that's what we're trying to do. Um, you mentioned before that uh, in a lot of these uh, databases, there's the contact information of like the key researchers or things like that. Uh, are there places in which NABA and NASA scientists collaborate with with members of the public, um, either officially or uh, unofficially? Yes, there are. One of the things that comes to mind uh, right now is the SETI Institute, Search for Extraterrestrial. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they, they, they use very collaboratively. At one point, I remember this is a little bit dated, but uh, there was a program that you can down, download in your computer and it yep. will use in the background. And I can see some, <laughs> you know, we all contributed. Some and hands because, are rising yeah. in here. Yeah. Back and, in the uni years. Yeah. And, and uh, so it's in the background, it's using some of your computing power when it's idle uh, because the data is so much. Uh, so there are many uh, areas uh, in, in, in collaborative space. Right now, uh, we have so much data. So many images that, that is the, you know, how can you call it? I forgot. It's a, uh, those uh, astronomers that they are like uh, hobby astronomers, the, the right word doesn't come to mind. But you know, there are people that are passionate. Um, amateurs? Amateurs. Amateurs, yeah. amateur astronomer. Thank you very much. Uh, so amateur astronomers, uh, so they can go through all these databases and look for images, and they have found planets, they have found stars, they have made discoveries. You know, I, if you go to the, say for example, the, the NASA website or the, or the NASA YouTube channel, you know, there are, from time to time, we highlight some of the contributions from the amateur astronomers because it's a, it's a plethora of, of information and data and, and images that we can go over it. Sometimes, unfortunately, we have limited resources. So we will fund a project for a few years but all that data is archived and then made available to the public and, and it keeps going on and on and on with amateur astronomers using the data. Um, on, on the topic of limited resources and particularly limited manpower, um, I'm really curious to know if, if you guys are exploring anything like um, machine vision or any machine learning techniques to try and like get better, better sort of learnings from all of this data that you have that would take humans a lot of time to look at, but maybe machines could cars for, for meeting a little bit faster. Absolutely. We, we are navigating the entire spectrum. We use virtual reality. Uh, we use machine learning. There are robots on the space station mm -hmm. that are, um, the, our goal is to be what we call cooperative. That means that working side by side, an astronaut and a robot, you know, kind of interfacing, building blocks for you know, the large, a large space telescope, you know, built on, on orbit or maybe a habitat that we need to do. There are some health factors that you need to take in consideration that with robots, you don't have to. So there is a, we are playing in the entire spectrum and it's very important. It's such a complex and, and innovative way that we still have a lot to go, you know, we we can't just you automatically and the rest go. Of the world. That's yeah. correct. But but we are there are significant spaces right now. We're doing, we're using, we're applying some of that technology also for what we call is satellite servicing. 
that means that you know we we build an asset a telescope uh, uh you know that is looking at the earth or or any other type of uh, of uh, activity and then it runs out of fuel propulsion system is a limiting factor you only have tanks that are so big just like the fuel in your car but in your car, you can stop at a gas station. In space, it's difficult. So imagine that you have this servicing, you know, robot that goes and, and refuels some of these uh, satellites that are there that could be used for 10 more years, but they're running out of fuel. In order to do that, you need to know that that how do you approach a satellite that is there? You know, you have to kind of learn and you have to adapt. It's a spacecraft tumbling because something happened so you have to look what the spacecraft is doing and then match it and then approach and dock to it so there is a lot of learning on the fly and those are algorithms programs that we're developing right now so we can't let you go without asking you the question that's probably um, on lots of kids minds right now which is that if they wanted to work for nasa is there really anything that they couldn't study and possibly end up there if they were good enough let me tell you, my advice is never stop dreaming because you never know. The dream of yesterday is the reality of today and, and you know, the future. Uh, we at NASA utilize all disciplines. You know, any engineering field that you have, we use it. Uh, accountants, you know, you may say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm good with math, but I don't want to be a mathematician, you know, calculate some of the orbits where if you are, if you're good with accounting, you know, marketing, we need people that can do the, the uh, public outreach. So we employ teachers, you name it. You know, I think that I consider a key key employees, no matter if they're cleaning the floors, if they're helping us with some education outreach, all the way to the biggest astrophysicist. You know, it takes a whole village. And and so if you're out there and you'd like to work for NASA and, and whatever is your passion, just follow it. You could be, you know, we will need journalists, you know, who's going to report when we go to Mars? There has to be some journalists. There has to be some radio broadcasting all the way from, from planet. So the sky's the limit. So uh, in, a, in a recent Hollywood blockbuster, there was a linguistics major who, uh, <laughs> who had a, a, big, a big run with NASA. Um, how realistic is that? When you say a linguistic major, can you elaborate more? I'm, I'm not... Quite oh, familiar. Yeah. so um, there was a film and aliens yeah. finally come to Earth and they want to communicate oh. with us. Oh, and so correct. they bring in a professor who's a linguistics expert oh, and they're like, please it. help us communicate with the aliens. That is correct. That is correct. We, uh, that's an area that I don't know too much about. <laughs> We're still not, you know, I speak three languages, Spanish, uh, Portuguese and English. You know, none of them are perfect. So <laughs> I know that I need linguistic help. Uh <laughs> but uh, maybe in the future we will need. So if there is any people, you know, listening to us that love languages, yeah. NASA is your place. No, no. Not, <laughs> not, kidding aside, we, we employ translators yeah. and linguistics. You know, when we cooperate with Japan, with Russia, with, with Korea, you know, these are, these are languages that many of us in the United States are not familiar. So we need people that speak you know, multiple language to help us. And, All and I can think about right now is uh, Richard Feynman learning Portuguese. And if it was good enough for him, then it could be very <laughs> handy for you. Look, I will follow Portuguese from then. <laughs> 
Thank you so much for being our guest tonight, Dr. Juan Roman from NASA. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Cade, Laura, Joe, for making the show happen with me. And uh, we've been biting into it. We'll be back next Wednesday evening. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.